In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. What on earth is that? What are you doing, Jeff? That makes a crazy noise. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston and Dara Lind. Uh, we, um, we had... Sort of originally planned to talk about something else, uh, but over the weekend, uh, mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio, and and in particular in El Paso, Texas, have brought back to the fore a lot of debates about guns and, and gun control that we've been having on and off um, for years in this country, but also I think seem to have focused attention in a clearer way than we've seen in the past on the sort of ideological uh, white supremacist, white nationalist ideology that appears to have motivated the El Paso shooter, although I think not the Ohio shooter, right, right. Um, but also several other killings, I mean, dating back to the uh, the, the church shooting in, in South Carolina mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, but, but I think it is coming into view for people that this has become a pattern with an ideological inflection and some element of copycat that this is now a prescribed formula that a person right. bought into a certain worldview might look at some of these other killings and say to themselves like these guys were were on the right track in some sense just as like Islamist terrorism at a certain point became a became a thing, right? That you didn't you didn't need to be part of like a secret cell to know that this is something that people were doing and, and what the general theory of it was. And, and I think I'm starting to see uh, more people saying that we should think about white white nationalist violence uh, in that kind of vein. And I know Jane, you've been you've been covering this a lot, right? And a lot. So the shooting in El Paso, which so far resulted in the deaths of 22 people. Um, I'm going to reference that there was a manifesto posted by the shooter. I think one of the most important things is when we're ever talking about terrorist manifestos is that they are not like diaries. These are not the inner workings of the person who wrote it. This wasn't shared with the intention of spreading it. Um, one of the top points he makes is that I agree with the Chrysler shooter and his manifesto. So there's kind of this circulating manifesto and actually goes back to the uh, 2011 terrorist attacks in Norway by a terrorist there who was doing so after and then published a very long manifesto, which was about, you know, I think if I remember correctly, it was many hundreds of pages, but it was all focused on anti-immigration and white nationalism. So I think it's important while putting the manifesto in context to realize that manifestos are written by terrorists and terrorists are big old liars. Especially um, like this genre of manifesto, which is very like it is not in, it is intended for its 
audience to be able to read the levels yeah. of sincerity and irony in it, but also to be written with enough, like, ambiguity right. that it can be, you know, there are things in there like, oh, people are going to blame this on a on the president or particular presidential candidates, and, like, I want to distance myself from that. And, like, you can't just say those things necessarily, right. but it is intended to be written in a way that there's a little bit of plausible deniability for anyone who expresses agreement with some of the sentiments in there. Right, exactly. And I think that it's it's gotten um, a fair amount of attention, and I think I don't want to talk too much just about the manifesto. But some of the points that it raises that I think are indicative of what white nationalism is, something that kind of grinds my proverbial gears, but not too much so, is when people combine the concept of white supremacy with the concept of white nationalism. White nationalism is a subset of white supremacist ideology. White supremacy is basically the idea that white people are superior to non-white people. White nationalism is a subset of that concept, which basically kind of takes white supremacy to a specific societal endpoint, which is to argue that, okay, if we allow non-white people and white people to mix in any sort of way, and a lot of times they do mean, you know, one of the points of the manifesto was this guy railing against race mixing, which is a term that one always, you know, when one uses the term race mixing, good things are always coming. Anyway, um, imagine that the world is a pie and each racial group can only consume pieces of the pie they cannot add to the pie. They cannot leave the pie alone. There are only there, it's a zero sum game among racial groups in the eyes of white nationalists, and they view it as okay. There are actual terms of phrasings like Africa for Africans, like this idea like every other race has, and I'm using air quotes, has their own space. Why don't white people have their own space? And so, since the late 1960s, early 1970s, when white nationalist ideology spread as a subset of white supremacy. Not coincidentally, immediately after the fall of colonialism, meaning the first time that it would have been, like, coherent to say black people have Africa. Right, exactly. And so you you started hearing some specific white nationalists making this plan of, like, well, we could have the Pacific Northwest. And there was something called that, I believe it's the Northwest imperative. I could be getting that wrong. But this idea that they could turn the Pacific Northwest, which it's worth noting that Oregon was founded as an all-white state. It was written into the Oregon Constitution. But that could be an all-white enclave. And that's, you know, whatever people are like, why are there white nationalist encampments in Idaho? That's why. But I think it's it's worth noting that white nationalist ideology is about the creation focused on the creation of ethnostates and doing so via either passive or active ethnic cleansing. So one of my many questions about this, right, is if, if I think back with my, like, history that I lived through hat on, mm-hmm. I remember this as having been a big deal in the 90s. Oh, yes. Um, but back then, we did not have this kind of spree shooter um, what we had was it was it was called militias, right? And right, yeah. and the idea was that there were kind of white um, separatist sort of groups, right? And they would be in rural areas, uh, frequently, uh, as you said, in the Northwest uh, or or the Midwest, um, like in the North. I mean, it, it was interestingly different from like the Ku Klux Klan, which happened in places where there were a lot of black people. This was more like people in fairly white areas right. it, further withdrawing yes. and casting off the legitimacy of the U.S. government. Right, because they, you know, there are certain terms that are used among these groups, and um, among them would be either, I think I've heard it as 
both Zionist organized and Zionist occupied, but Zog, Zionist organized government or Zionist occupied government. The idea that the federal government, you, it, it's interesting how white nationalism, you know, I've argued before that anti-Semitism is in some ways a conspiracy theory and white nationalism is very much part of a conspiratorial mindset. And you see that with kind of the founding documents of these ideologies and they include the, the Turner Diaries and other kind of books poorly, very poorly written books, but like a lot of propaganda about how like the government is trying to curtail the birth rates of white people. And the government is controlled by Jews who are trying to stop, you know, trying to prevent white people from giving birth through whatever means, movies, birth control, any other thing that they could think of. But one of the things that's been concerning, and I've been talking to a bunch of domestic counterterrorism people over the last couple of days, is after the Oklahoma City bombing, which was the worst domestic terrorism attack in U.S. history. And it, it's interesting to me how Oklahoma City, for me, was a very formative experience. It, you know, I was—I I would have turned seven that year. And I remember seeing the pictures in the newspapers and being very afraid. But after that, the FBI basically went really hard after militia groups. And this is, you know, this is a long-running process. If you watch the terrific Frontline documentary on Oklahoma City, you see that Oklahoma City was in part inspired by a Timothy McVeigh seeing what happened to the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, mm -hmm. and also to what took place at a white nationalist compound of Ruby Ridge, which I believe is in Idaho also. Um, but yeah, so that was my question. So yes. after Oklahoma City, I mean, was the militia movement sort of like dismantled? Is, it was is that somewhat, why we stopped hearing somewhat, about it? Yes. And especially because financially they had a lot of issues. And, you know, one of the most famous cases that uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center got involved had to do with basically breaking the back of Aryan nations and taking down some of these militias because by suing them into the ground, essentially. But then, you know, after 9-11, you see this massive shift away from concerns about domestic terrorism. Domestic terrorism is defined under the both uh, the law and the Patriot Act, which is also a law. It is just it is a definition. It is not a thing. It is there is no such crime as the crime of domestic terrorism. If you commit a terroristic act, you will be charged with murder, sure. like say in this case, or with uh, gun crimes, for example. Um, let's say that if you wanted to help ISIS and you were an American citizen, you could be charged with helping ISIS. You cannot be charged with helping the Klan or Atomwaffen or any of the domestic white nationalist groups. You could possibly be charged with attempting to like move guns across state lines, but that's about it. But how the, United, how the Department of Justice and the FBI have viewed domestic terrorism and how much funding has been behind pursuing domestic terrorism has been a concern, as has the fact that the, you know, Terrorist groups have figured out around the world lone wolf attacks are far more difficult to stop than the kind of militia-based effort that we saw. And you know, even with uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, that that was a a small group of people. That was Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols attempt you know, using a truck and fertilizer to blow up a building. That obviously was a devastating attack, but that's also something that's relative, that's easier for someone, you know, if you observe someone buying a lot of fertilizer, that's going to be more suspicious than for a lot of people taking the guns that they already legally own. I, think, I in, think in the in, El Paso shooting, the guns were legally obtained. Right. Um, I think that the other thing about Oklahoma City, though, is it's like it's simultaneously the last of the 90s militia movement and the first in the kind of lineage that leads us to today, right? Because 
on April 20th, 1999, which like was, you know, deliberately chosen as Hitler's birthday, yada, yeah. yada, yada, uh, you have the Columbine shooting in which the shooters were explicitly uh, inspired by Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing, but were trying to outdo him. And that, in turn, has kind of become the ur-text that, you know, the Norway shooter used that has also been cited, you know, in, in addition right. to being cited as kind of the ur-school shooting, as we've con- come to understand it, you know— in the last kind of 20 years where the initial media narrative was very much about like, oh, this is the cost of social isolation and video games and, you know, bullying and Marilyn a lot Manson. of other things that yeah. argue that honestly, like, didn't seem as obviously like punts at the time. You know, it kind of it seemed like the Hitler worship was an epiphenomenon of the deeper so- social alienation, whereas right. now I think it's easier to look back on it and say, well, it's not a coincidence that it is so often a thing that people like that white nationalism is so often a thing that disaffected young men are turning to. But I, you know, that kind of problematizes the idea of the lone wolf because what we're seeing right now is like people who are acting alone, right. who are engaged in online communities with other people, some of whom will never do anything violent, some of whom are lifting up the violent acts of others as emulatory. Right. And like, at what point do you say? Even though someone has not, like, you know, been meeting and plotting with other people to buy a bunch of fertilizer, that that lone wolf is an understatement of what's happening here, that what's happening is the development of a loosely connected uh, group of people around an ideology. I mean, I do think the sort of forgetting around the Columbine killing is interesting and important. I mean, I think, you know, this is— I, I don't know, you know, in the audience, how old people are, what, which, what they remember. But like this shooting happened. It was a huge national story. I mean, it was a, it was a bigger news story than Sandy Hook or any of the more recent ones because we didn't have the precedent. We did not move on nearly as quickly from it. And there was this like really extended social dialogue. I was in high school at the time, so I was very much like the the, the yeah. object of this. And like there was a lot of column inches spilled on the band Marilyn Manson Which, and on the phenomenon of wearing trench coats. Oh, the entire trench coat mafia thing. If you watched any sort of like I remember I would get ready for school watching Good Morning America and all people talked about was Marilyn Manson, the trench coat mafia. And there are two things on that. One, the Columbine shooters were not fans of Marilyn Manson, leading to the act- Brian Warner, the lead singer of Marilyn Manson, to pan a response from Rolling Stone saying, like, this is not my fault. They did not like my music. And I think that one of the things looking back also is talking about video games or music mm-hmm. or how very sad these poor white kids were. And now looking back and realizing, like, oh, these kids were assholes. These were murderous right. assholes. But I mean, also just that, like, we—, we so much was dissected, right? right? And like, like this trench coats thing was yeah. like a huge obsession. And yeah. like, some of my friends and I, we wore trench coats. Ironically, of course, after you did. this, of course right? One hundred percent did. Of course, you did. And the fact that they like subscribed to a, a white nationalist ideology just like wasn't in the discourse after this. And I and I was reminded of this because th- like. Also this weekend, um, I, I went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, which relates sort of tangentially to um, the Manson family murders, which it, it's like left out of the movie that the purpose of that was supposed to be to spark a race war 
it, in the United States. Now, like, what kind of sense that ever made? Like, I have no idea, right? But it, it's it's just it's another example no, it, it, it's, of like you couldn't talk about nine eleven and like just like forget to mention like the concept of like organized political Islamic ideology and violence and its links to other episodes and just be like, what's up with those guys, right? right. Like, it, like, and it's true with anything that happens, like it, it requires a somewhat odd personal psychology to undertake any of these things, I think. But we have in America, like developed a real track record of sort of leaving this out. And, you know, I have to say, like, you put it back in, and it's not totally obvious to me what that gets you. Like, I read a National Review editorial uh, yesterday that I thought was was sort of thoughtful. I, I liked it. I had, was, like, ready to dunk on it. <laughs> but but actually, it was good. And they were like, look, like, we need to take this really, like, seriously, um, you know, as, as a problem that's afflicting our society. And I was like, oh, you know, this is, like, a lot better than, than I thought it was. Um, but then at the end, I was still like, okay, but, like, what does that amount to exactly because i feel like what happened after 9/11 in the united states was like mostly a hysterical overreaction like for, there's a certain amount of like i think ilhan omar was like struggling to make this point that like why is there this cast of suspicion over muslims for their association with a small violent fringe when we don't treat like all young white men as presumptively mass murderers. Um, and like, that's a good point. But like, actually treating all young white men as presumptively mass murderers, I think would not be right. yeah. like an, a good response. I mean, I think something that kind of does help solve this, even if it, I think, makes a, some other things a little harder, is like, not all violence committed by people with the same ideology is ideological violence per se, mm -hmm. right? Not all of it is, certainly not all of it is terrorism per se. And we've seen over the last couple of days a little bit of interest in like people looking into the social media profiles of the Dayton shooter and saying, oh, okay, he supported Elizabeth Warren in the presidential primary. He had like pro-antifund, anti-cop postings and, you know, folks, and then, and then the kind of folks primarily feminists on the left going, this man had a history of, you know, like really terrible, horrible fantasies against women, was a member of a porno grind band, which is yes. a genre that I only discovered in the last day and haven't listened to any to. And the number of people who were like, it's ironic. And I'm like, as we've learned with ironic everything else, some Someone people else, aren't being yes, ironic. Yes. Um, you know, that he was like suspended from school for having a rape list and looked at all of that and gone, okay, so this isn't apolitical. This is an act of, this is an act of misogynistic violence. And I know that the personal is political has particular meanings, especially in feminism, but there's a big difference between someone who goes on a spree killing having written a manifesto that makes it very clear, like Dylan Roof, you know, wanted to spark a race war in an analogous, if not identical, obviously, way to the way that Charles Manson wanted to spark a race war. This shooting in El Paso was an attempt to, like, get other people to rise up. And that's obviously different from someone who is expressing an ideology and isn't necessarily trying to point it at a third party. And I think this is where the classical definition of terrorism gets really helpful, right? Not all mass violence is terrorism, and it's a good idea to d disaggregate those two terms. 
But if you're doing something because you want brown people to stop coming into the United States and you're or because you want the American people to like yeah. take a stand against brown people coming into the United States, that's pretty classically like aiming it at a second party, aiming violence at a second party so that a third party will do something. Well, let's else. Let, let, let's take a break, though, because I want to I, I want to break down this, this yes. question of like the relationship between means and ends. Cool, cool. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show... You might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. A question I have about this is like, how is it supposed to work in these kind of Brevik-inspired killings? Like, what is the theory, right? Because you had with 9-11 and Osama bin Laden, at least as I understand it, the idea was to try to draw the United States into an escalating conflict with the Islamic world that was going to get a larger share of the world's Muslims essentially on al-Qaeda's side, right? That the, the goal was to sort of produce a cycle of violence and polarization that was that was going to take al-Qaeda from a relatively small group of people into a kind of a mass movement, right? And, and if I think back to the sort of classical anarchists from the, the early 20th century, right, they, they similarly had this concept that they were going to assassinate world leaders, which was going to make world leaders very, very frightened. And then they were going to clamp down in a way that would um, expose, it would take the mask off the sort of myths of classical liberal society and inspire proletariat to see the need for revolution, right? So those are like, you know, Al-Qaeda and like early 20th century anarchists are like, they're very different, but they actually have the same, the same theory of the case here, right? Which is like, we are weak. We cannot actually undermine these structures. We don't have enough followers. And we're going to try to provoke a backlash that gains us more support, right? And like, it's therefore, I think, important in a policy response to those kind of things to like actually not do it. 
right? To like not go say like start a global network of secret torture prisons, right? Like invading medium-sized countries on like dubious bases, right? You have yeah, to do, doing a, a large fake vaccination campaign to collect a bunch of DNA samples, right? You have to try to maintain some level of like social calm. Like it's hard. It's hard to be like, well, we're gonna just like brush off thousands of people being murdered, right? But like you have to try to like keep your shit together as a society. And that's what I worry about when I see this kind of discourse of like, it's time to take the white nationalist problem seriously. Because like, it, it seems to me that racism does a lot of tangible harm in American life as a pretty broad social phenomenon. But a handful of spree killers, while not good, are not, like, actually capable of, like, shaking American society to its foundations. And I really worry about the idea of, like, reorganizing American life around some kind of, like, comprehensive surveillance of people's social media profiles so that if we, like, see, like, problematic Facebook posts, you now go on some FBI watch list and people are following you around that, like, it would be great to, like, exterminate racial prejudice or something. But, like, is that what's really going to happen if we decide – you know, it's like, quote unquote, time to take domestic terrorism seriously. So it's it's interesting because I think the first thing is that historically, domestic terrorism, how the FBI and um, Rich Lowry wrote a piece for the National Review that I'm working on a piece kind of that's kind of response to in a sense. But he wrote a piece about how like, the FBI broke the Klan in the late 1960s and 1970s, which is sort of true. And essentially what the FBI did then was just fill the Klan with informants. Right. Like, there, you know, there were famous quotes about, like, you'd go to a meeting with nine Klansmen and six were FBI informants. Right. But also the Black Panthers. Yes, yeah, also the Black Panthers. Also pretty much any group that was viewed to be kind of counter to American norms. And, I, you know, it's part of COINTELPRO. And I think one of the things that was worth noting is not that the FBI was not, you know, breaking down the Klan because they thought that J. Edgar Hoover thought the Klan was like the most evil entity in the world. They were doing so because the Klan made the United States look bad. Uh-huh. Um, so, for instance, I remember when I was taking classes on like Maoist China, there's an English lesson that was used in schools in the late 1960s in China that was basically like, Jimmy is a black boy in America. Jimmy doesn't have everything that he should have. Like, Jimmy's not allowed to go to this school. And so basically, you know, racial separation and racial segregation made the United States look bad mm-hmm. in the in, during the Cold War. And so in response, what the FBI often used when going after Klansmen or kind of the far in the American Nazi Party, which it took very seriously right away in like 1965 around its formation, was bas- sending postcards to Klansmen being like, Everyone in this neighborhood knows you're in the Klan, and everybody thinks that's lame, and no one likes you. And like, you can go back and read these postcards, and so one of like a famous one was like, "Someone's looking up your hood," just to be like, everyone knows this, and it's embarrassing and low class to be in the Klan. The issue now is that attempting to disrupt white nationalist circles by arguing that being a white nationalist or a racist is embarrassing is going to be a slightly tougher sell in our particular time right, period. But what I'd also doing like, is socially isolating someone and therefore making them feel like 
the only people who understand them are their fellow white nationalists. Right, exactly. And I would also say that the FBI has been asked a bunch of times in the Department of Justice in general, uh, most recently by Ted Cruz about Antifa, which Ted Cruz wrote a letter to the to the Department of Justice asking Antifa to be described as a uh, domestic terrorist organization, which is a, a thing that d- they do not do. Sure. But, you know, one of the biggest points the Department of Justice keeps making is we do not, you know, we do not police ideology, which is not historically true. They have absolutely policed ideology all over the place for they placed Fred Hampton's ideology to his death. Well, so th- but it is, you know, the idea is, going to your point, that at a certain point, it is not illegal to be a white nationalist. It is not illegal to be a racist. And if you want to post white nationalist screeds on a platform that will permit you to do so, you are fully allowed to do so. And trying to figure out, you know, one of the reasons why there's been a lot of conversation about attempting to like, ban 8chan or something like that is that the FBI and other entities use 8chan to basically observe these groups. In fact, one of the first postings after the manifesto was posted was, hello, FBI, because they know that they're there. And so I think that there's a concern of, one, in order to go after white nationalists in the same way that they did in the late 19s, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, would involve the breakdown of civil rights for a lot of people. But also, the people who are being observed are fully aware they're being observed, and they don't really care. So the direction that I actually thought Matt was going was, like, a little more elementary, um, which wasn't, like, in the absence of kind of the applicability of this specific, like, crackdown theory of change making any sense, what is the theory of change here, right? right? Like, what does this dude drive from Dallas to El Paso and gun a bunch of people down in a Walmart you know, like what's what's the kind of step two, step three, step four there? And kind of separately from the question of like what role does the president's or someone anyone else's rhetoric have in all this? Like what is if you're trying to think about, you know, let's not provoke the backlash. What is the thing you don't do in order to give them what they want? So historically, and it's interesting because one of the things about white nationalist rhetoric is that while the mediums by which it is spread change, what the actual rhetoric is does not change. The first thing is that is for many of the people who take on violent actions through white nationalism, it is an inherently nihilistic viewpoint. The shooter at El Paso did not intend to survive. That was not the point. And though apparently, according to the federal authorities, he's been very willing to talk because, again, he did not think he would survive. And this was going to be a sense of suicide note. And you know, that's denigrated in some of the circles that he was trafficking in to survive this kind of thing. Um, but also, you know, if you go back to the Turner Diaries, the idea was that there'd be this ideal terrorist group. In the book, it's called The Order, which actually resulted in the formation of the actual terrorist group, The Order, uh, which was linked with a number of murders in the Pacific Northwest and the murder of a Jewish radio host, Alan Berg, in 1984. Um, everyone involved is now either dead or in prison. Um, but there, very, there, you know, there'd be all of these violent actions and the government repression on on the basis of those violent actions would then spur a backlash. Everyone would go to the order. The order would eliminate all non-white people from the United States and then globally eliminate all non-white people from the earth. And so, that, like, and I'm quite serious, like, that is basically where the end of the Turner Diaries is, is, is that they ethnically cleanse the earth. But I think that in the terms of the actual next steps, the idea is that a terrorist action that they believe that most Americans would agree with. I think that there is a sense among white nationalists that this is a sentiment 
that most white people have. And the people, who, the white people who don't have are race traitors or uh, they are linked to Jewish interests or globalism more generally. And they, they think doing this and then the ultimate government backlash will drive more white people toward their cause. But this is what's like... I don't know. I don't. I, I feel stupid doing like tactical criticism of murderers, <laughs> but there's been obviously a lot of discussion among progressives about I think the obvious parallels between the rhetorical tropes in this manifesto and the rhetorical tropes in anti-immigration discourse from the mainstream Republican Party and conservative movement. And so some of that is like, hey, you guys are egging on this violence. But then another part of it is like. Why are you massacring people in the Walmart exactly? Unlike some of these causes, like there is a major political movement in the United States of America dedicated to cutting down on the volume of immigration to the United States. That movement currently controls the presidency. Uh, it controls the U.S. Senate, but it does not control the House of Representatives. And it seems like what you need is to like knock on some doors in the suburbs of Atlanta and like win the election and try to pass the whatever act um, that, you know, a couple weeks before this, right, the the, the discourse uh, in, in the media was all about the national conservatism gathering uh, that happened here in D.C. at the Ritz-Carlton, where a bunch of people, politicians, think tankers, um, Israeli right-wingers, you know, all had a kind of party together to talk about how, like, immigration restriction is really good. All the centrist people, the never-Trump columnists and everybody were doing takes about how Democrats were, like, veering too far toward open borders. Like, there was just, like, a lot of mainstream political momentum behind the idea that the United States should stop this influx of immigrants from the third world. And, like, they haven't won the argument, but it's not, like, outside the Overton window or, like, you need to do this stuff. And if anything, like, it's it's clearly counterproductive, right? It's like now you have Trump doing his, like, foot-dragging teleprompter speech where he's like, actually, guys, racism is bad. And, you know, you have, like, National Review doing these editorials, like, distancing themselves from all this. So it's like, I don't know. Like, I mean, of course, like, murderers don't make sense. But, like, it, it really doesn't make sense to me. I mean, actually, when you put it that way, it does make a little more sense to me because— There you go. The thing about this is— Invasion is a martial term for a reason, right? There are not any rules there. These are people who are constructed as not caring about any of your laws. Why should you use the political system to try to, like, why should you play by the rules if the other side isn't and if the other side is engaging in a war against you? I and also I think that this is note, kind of where yeah. the, like, what responsibility does Donald Trump and some elements of the conservative movement play for using invasion metaphors when referring to unauthorized immigration come in. Like, I really don't want to say all metaphors are dangerous because someone might take them literally. But I think that the answers I have seen to how it is acceptable to use terms like invasion and then not expect people to take them literally haven't really cut it for me. Like, it, I haven't seen anybody go, you know what? Now that I understand that there are people who think I literally mean you should go to the border with your gun and shoot people, I am going to step that back. And I think that it's not unreasonable to ask for that, given that when you're portraying a clash of civilizations narrative, people aren't going to want to resolve that by non-martial means. I also think if you are in politics, you want to use 
easily understood terminology to get people to do something that is not inherently easy to understand. You want to be able to say there is an invasion. And the way we deal with it is that you need to vote for Republicans in the midterm elections. I vote for Republicans in the presidential election. And then people are confused at why people respond to, you know, invasion rhetoric with shootings. There's been a lot of conversation among conservatives about like this kind of language on the left. And you know, the um Steve Scalise shooting a couple of years ago, which the you know, the shooter in that case was really into like Bernie Sanders. So Bernie Sanders responded like, no, I meant that we need you know do this in, with politics and love. But I think that it's you know, politics is extraordinarily boring. And that's the way it should be. Politics should be something in which we are, you know, having these back and forths over about six inches of policy. But, you know, we don't have that kind of politics. We have, you know, kind of the globalization of politics in which, you know, every election is the Flight 93 election. I was paying attention to Twitter this past weekend. And I noticed, yeah, it was it was a poor idea. But you notice the same exact type of conspiracy theorizing going on about the El Paso shooting that took place during pretty much every shooting beforehand. And the thing I thought was interesting was it was conspiracy theorizing about how the government wants to take your guns by people who voted for the government that would hypothetically, in this instance, take their guns. And so I think it's interesting how much the theory of politics in which you tell people like there's an invasion or, or this is a disaster or this is a crisis and the way that we at, you, we expect people to respond is within the thin six inches of policy that we think we're talking about. And then we're very surprised when they go outside that six inches of policy. But I mean, I think it's worth saying, like, I don't think when Trump talks about an invasion, like, I don't think that that is a metaphor. Like Trump, literally, like, deployed the military to counter the invasion, and he invoked a lot of emergency powers that derive from Cold War-era national security statutes to repurpose funds and do the wall building. Yeah, and then there's the joking, not joking, recurring lines at rallies about how the military isn't allowed to do things and leaving unspecified what those things are, which actually gets back to the beginning of, like, the slipperiness that ensues when you have things that can be read ironically but can also be read sincerely. Right. So, I mean, I just think there is a thing that does happen in politics is people use a lot of overheated rhetoric and metaphors that then when somebody goes and takes them literally, you step back and you're like, whoa, 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 that's not what I meant. But like, you know, you deploy the military to block an invasion. Like that's right, not a right. that's not a metaphor, right? Um, and and as you pointed out like long ago, Dara, right? Like there's this long running like discourse in the policy community about immigrants and wages and stuff. But Trump has mm-hmm. always been incredibly focused on the Phys- the threat of physical harm yeah. From, yeah. from immigrants. Again, like in a non-metaphorical way. Now, you could say as a metaphor, these immigrants are coming here and they're bleeding the country dry, blah, 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 and really be talking blah, blah, blah. about economics. But like yeah. Trump is saying like quite literally immigrants, are, immigrants coming are coming here across and, the border to kill you and yes. committing <laughs> murders, <laughs> yes. right? And like they wanted to create like an ICE like sub-department where people were going to report immigrants' crimes. They, they have created it. Right. It's just that it's been kind of more abundant. It, although I think it was under DHS, not ICE, Fair um, in case anyone at headquarters <laughs> is going to so, mock me for that. So it's just like it's – that aspect of it is like incredibly sincere as as far as I can tell and like yeah. not part of a rhetorical game or a metaphor. And at the same time, like as Trump is like – I think like not kidding and not making a metaphor, he's also very clearly I think like not calling for – 
like lone wolves to shoot up Walmarts. Like he he's quite clear on what it is he's calling for. And I think it's kind of horrifying, but it's not horrifying in that same way. Right. I mean, I'm not sure that he is all that clear, right? Like, I really don't want to get into what Donald Trump thinks when he's saying something because I don't think any of us has enough insight into the psychology of Donald Trump. But like, it does seem to me that if you're saying that this is a literal invasion, if you've deployed the military, if you've joked about how the military can't shoot people, it's not that unreasonable for someone to listen to all of that and say, oh, OK, he wants his base to finish the job. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily like that, you know, anyone in the White House is going, oh, great, we're, you know, we're going to like draw a dotted arrow to this point and just hope that they follow us there. Like we're going to incentivize mass violence. I think that it's probably an underdeveloped theory of politics because I think that a lot of people who like really believe in something being being an existential crisis don't necessarily endorse, right. like aren't willing to themselves kind of engage in the extremism it would take to get there. Like a lot of people who are too far left for the DSA aren't like training in socialist militias. Right. Um, so it's not like it's not that surprising that the president, who is after all fundamentally a low information voter, would not necessarily have like thought out the consequences of that. But I don't necessarily think that the way that Donald Trump talks about things, which like the other thread here is something that uh, Benji Sarlin of NBC was re resurfacing a piece that he wrote in fall of 2016 about how what really distinguished then-candidate Trump's rhetoric was an indifference between judicial and extrajudicial violence, right? right? This is like going back to the jokes about protesters getting beaten up at rallies, that right. kind of thing, that it's a distinct thing vis-a-vis -vis other Republican candidates who are very big on support the troops, but who don't necessarily fetishize like toughness and somebody needing to stop them. And so Trump in particular may have lent himself to this particular reading or misreading, deliberately or otherwise, in a way that I think does make a little bit of internal sense if you really believe that you're being invaded and, like, you know, the deep state is preventing the military from doing what's needed. Right. I think with that, we should probably go to the white paper. Let's do it. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? All right. So this week's white paper is an article recently published in the Journal of Criminology and Public Policy uh, by Marie Ouellette, Sadaf Hashimi, Jason Gravel, and Andrew V. Papakristos, and apologies to all y'all if I butchered your names, on network exposure and excessive use of force, investigating the social transmission of police misconduct. And so what this paper does is basically use some fancy network theory to uh, establish something that you've seen as a trope if you've seen any gritty cop movie or TV show of the last 20 years, which is the principle that, like, A, some cops are dirty and go too hard on the people they're policing to, you know, make a point or just because they can, but B, more importantly for this, that they do so when exposed to other police officers engaging in that kind of wrongdoing mm -hmm. and right. see them get away with it. So it takes a sample of complaints filed against Chicago cops over a period of several years and looks at, for people who had more than one complaint filed against them, whether, you know, use of force complaints and also kind of other kinds of misconduct 
um, like bribery or that kind of thing, um, and looks at who else is named in that complaint and whether being named in a use of force complaint as kind of a co-complainant and having more other people or in that complaint, like having 80% of the cops in that complaint having been named in previous complaints for use of force, for example, whether that is more likely to make that other 20%, the you know, the other person who had not previously been named, engage in use of force in the future. And they find like moderate, but like pretty well-defined relationship that's moderately positive. Like, you know, if you increase the number of people who are with you who have been accused of use of force by like 34%, you have like a 25% increase in your likelihood in the future. But it's it's less novel in terms of its actual finding than it is in the way that it's thinking about police misconduct as deviance, as something that is transmitted just as extra police criminal behavior is transmitted by learning from other people and finding from there the kind of bounds of what you can get away with in the broader society or in this case, the the subculture of policing. Yeah, and I think it, it is worthwhile of thinking about police and law enforcement in general as a like is a subculture with its own culture and its very own kind of demarcated rules of wrong and right and i think that's that's really worth getting into especially of how what constitutes wrong and right gets kind of shaped and shifted in response to you know either their superiors or kind of external observers it's interesting to sort of like step back because, you know, going back to the the conversation we were having earlier about white nationalists and like, should we take this more seriously, that this like a, a lot of um, discourse about, you know, police involvement in racism and racial misconduct has been very prominent over the past several years from from the left. And, you know, another way of thinking about this that I think is a little bit implicit in the methods of this paper is that, like, you just have people, right? And they're in an organization, and they might do things that are bad. And if people who do that stuff, like, continue to be around and prosper, it, like, rubs off on other people, right? And, like, a little bit autonomously from, like, bigger picture questions about ideology and anything else. Or for that matter, like organizational structure. Like there's a fairly funny by the standards of academic papers line in here, like making false arrests is not something taught in police academy. <laughs> right. Right, right. I mean, exactly. That, that you know, it's like th there are a lot of police officers in the United States of America. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. It is a violent job, right? Like having violent confrontations with suspects, like, is in fact part of the job. So, like, it's a thing that happens. There's going to be a range of activity around all of that. Um, we've known for a long time, like, long before, like, the Black Lives Matter discourse, like, corruption in police departments it's was like, a It's like a lot question. of people didn't see Serpico. <laughs> I think that that's the issue here. Or, you know, the godfather, exactly. right? I mean, they, they, these, uh, uh, these issues have just, like, been with us for a long time. Like, how do you manage a large force of people whose job is to interact with criminals? constantly, right? And so, like, you want them to interact in a particular appropriate set of ways, uh, but it's challenging to monitor them, right? Like, it's like the whole nature of it is, like, a legitimately hard problem. And and I think that some of this stuff in the networks, like, it goes to show, right? Because it's like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to purge the entire Chicago Police Department? And, like, then who's going to do the policing? Right. I mean, one of the previous studies cited in here is a study that shows that officers who generally believed that 
intra-departmental business was handled fairly, things like promotions and raises and that kind of thing, were less likely to engage in the kinds of things that you, you know, the kinds of what they call like noble cause corruption, like, oh, I have to go tough on this suspect because, you know, that's what it's going to take to get him to follow the law. These people have no respect for anything. the job done, Dan. Right, right. you know, in, the, in actually the same way that like, oh, if the police, if the military isn't allowed to shoot people and they need to be shot, then I'll shoot them. Um, but that, you know, they were less likely to engage in that, whereas people who were more frustrated were more likely to engage in noble cause corruption. It's a little bit hard to like tease out the causal relationship there, to be fair. But it does raise the unintentionally funny parallel that what you would essentially have is if you had informants for internal affairs in the same kind of prevalence that you had informants for the FBI, which is to say if you had, like, people who were so invested in the dignity of the police department that they were willing to tell on their colleagues all the time, then in theory you might have an easier way of rooting them out and, you know, coming up with people who are more into it. But, you know, that's kind of – that gets into much bigger issues of, like, the blue wall of silence and that kind of thing that isn't necessarily addressed in this paper but is always hovering at the edge of when we talk about, like, this as a – you know, yes, people are individuals, but at the same time – there does appear to be a population of people who will not themselves engage in misbehavior, but who will protect others mm-hmm. when accused. But also, I mean, you know, uh, Jane was talking about, you know, FBI's very heavy use of, like, infiltrators, yeah. right, right, to, to right. break up organizations. And so, like, this is something you could do, right, if you were, like, incredibly serious about rooting out misconduct in big city police departments is, like, an external agency could try to infiltrate like yeah. undercover officers whose job was to like come monitor these things and then betray their yeah. their fellow officers but part of the purpose of flooding both leftist groups and white supremacist groups in the 60s with infiltrate informants right part of the goal was to like disrupt specific plots but part of the goal was just to demoralize everybody because and everyone make the is a fed collapse right. right and i feel like that that isn't good to attempt within a police department. People don't want the Chicago Police Department to collapse, right? Like, people don't... If you take misconduct seriously, you see blue wall of silence behavior as a problem because it makes it hard to identify perpetrators. But the spirit of, like, solidarity and, like, we enjoy working with our fellow officers and we have, like, team spirit and we're doing something together and not, like, constantly thinking we're going to be betrayed, like, that's good. It's it's Mm -hmm. hard to imagine an effective police force that was, like, full of everybody thinking the next guy was going to drop a dime on them. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, With that, feel free to drop a dime on any white paper-related misconduct you see or uh, anything else. Don't don't actually drop dimes on other members of the Facebook group unless you're complaining to our moderator. That's not cool. Um, And if you're complaining to the moderator, that's fine. But definitely join the Facebook group. Uh, Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) So thanks, everybody there. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will return on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 